you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, 41 through 46. Now, I know every week I say, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and it's because every week I hope you do, because we're here to teach the Bible, and I want you to be looking at your Bible. I want you to see the truth that is there in Scriptures. Now, last week was awesome because our God is awesome. We looked at one of the most famous, perhaps, stories in the Bible, and certainly in the story of Elijah, the spiritual smackdown on Mount Carmel. And I just kind of gave you last week's lesson because we saw that the Lord's vindication on Mount Carmel by fire falling from heaven, we saw that that is a foreshadow and points us to the Lord's vindication on Mount Calvary by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you go through everything that Elijah did as a prophet of the Lord, Jesus does better. Whatever Elijah did, Jesus has done better. And so if you look through that, you'll see that he called, Elijah called the people to himself. Well, guess what? We call people to Jesus as a greater prophet than Elijah and Moses. We call them to Jesus through the gospel. And the mediator, Elijah, prepared an acceptable sacrifice. Well, guess what? The Lord has prepared an even more acceptable sacrifice of himself. He is not only the high priest that is greater than all priests, including false gods and even the, the, the priesthood of Judaism, but he became the sacrifice himself. And Elijah, we saw, interceded that God's fame would be known to all peoples. And before he went to the cross in John 17, uh, Jesus interceded for us and for all people. He interceded on the cross. He said, it is finished. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do And of course, as the risen Christ, he's still interceding for us today. Indeed, he is a high priest that is greater than any priesthood. And then Elijah, he, he was vindicated by that consuming fire. Well, guess what? Jesus was vindicated by the wrath and the fiery wrath of God falling on the cross. And then he was vindicated by the resurrection. He is a God king that is greater than any other. And yet, it calls for a response. All of this calls for a response last week. So look in your Bibles. Let's see the response again. And it's in verses 39 and 40. So in light of all that we saw last week, it still holds true that when God vindicates Himself by a acceptable sacrifice and a miraculous vindication, there should be heart repentance or there will be a holy reckoning. We see that heart repentance in 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Oh, how Elijah longed to hear the people say that. But then... There is the holy reckoning in verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the bottom of the mountain, to the brook Kishon, and he slew them there. And the idea is their blood washed away from the land. And so the land is being purified of unbelief and apostasy. I mean... Things are going good. Now, what did Easter with Elijah teach us? It taught us this. The Lord himself will settle who the true God is by vindicating his chosen servant, Jesus Christ, with an acceptable sacrifice, the cross, and a miraculous vindication, which was the resurrection. The resurrection of his son from the dead. So... That's all last week. Fire falling. But the question this week is, where's the rain? I've seen fire. Any James Taylor fans here? I've seen fire. 
And I've seen rain. How's it go? You want me to sing it? I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend, but I always thought I'd see you again. I listened to that a couple times this week. That was just a good song. Him and his guitar. Well, we've seen fire, but where's the rain, right? Isn't this all about the rain? Go show yourself to Ahab and it will rain. Well, we've got fire. Where's the rain? Now, things are going to start getting weird here. And uh, kind of from here on out, things get really messy, kind of fuzzy, kind of weird. And so let's look at the passage first of all. Let's read it. It's verses, uh, uh, verses uh, uh, 41 through 46. So let's take a look at it. Verses 41 through 46. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Okay, now that's just weird. Go eat because it's going to rain. Okay, whatever. And then, verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, so he goes up even higher, and he crouched down on the earth, and he put his face face between his knees. Now, this is weird. 43, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that heavy shower does not stop you. So it came about in a little while because you see the, the when he says the storm's the size of a man's hand, that's how you measured the distance. So he looked and he saw that cloud and he held his hand up and his hand could cover the cloud. And so it's, it's a ways off, but it's coming. And you know how fast a storm can move. So he's like, hurry up, hurry up, go down, get your chariot. So, so it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Now Jezreel was at the base of the mountain. It was about 15 to 20 miles away in the Jezreel Valley and that's where he had his summer palace where him and Jezebel hung out. Then it gets weird again. Verse 46, Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and that means he took his robes and he stuck them in his belt because he's about to get active, because he's ready to have a chariot race. But not like in Ben-Hur. You know, Chuck Heston had to have a chariot in the chariot race. Elijah doesn't even need a chariot in a chariot race. He, by the hand of the Lord, outruns the chariot. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. End of story. Okay? Now, that's kind of weird. Did you notice some things? First of all, there's a lot of going up and going down in the passage. Do you see that in your Bibles? Everybody's going up. Everybody's going up. And then they rush down. Go up, go up. In the previous passage, last week, we saw there was a lot of coming near. Come near, come near. Go up, go up. These are all words for worship in the Old Testament. You come near to God and you go up into the presence of God. So there's more going on here than just people doing a lot of mountain climbing. Okay, So there's a lot of going up and going down. You've seen that. But also, why does Elijah... Tell the king to go up and eat and drink, but Elijah goes up and prays. It's just kind of weird. It's like, okay, fire just came down. They're down, presumably, at the bottom of the mountain. They just slaughtered 850 or at least 450 priests. Their blood is washed away in the washing away in the river Kishon. And Elijah says, Hey, go up and get you something to eat. I'm going to go over here and pray. I mean, what's up with that? And then what's up with outrunning the chariot? It just says he, all of a sudden, he just like outruns the chariot for 20 miles. What is going on in this passage? And the question becomes, what has Ahab been doing the whole time during the spiritual smackdown? We don't hear from him. 
The last we heard from Ahab, Elijah said, Hey, go tell all the nation of Israel and all the prophets of Baal to come. And Ahab did that. They come, and we don't, we haven't heard from Ahab during this whole spiritual smackdown. Did he come near? You know, Elijah said to the people, Come near to me as I prepare the sacrifice. Did he come near? As Elijah had said, we don't know. Did he repent with the rest of the people? Was he there shouting, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! With the rest of the people? We don't know. He's silent. We don't see him. We don't don't know. And listen to this. If he did, I mean, it is kind of funny, because you got these prophets on one side, you got all of Israel, and then you got Ahab. Now, if I was Ahab... You know, as soon as that fire fell, I'd say, well, I know which side I'm on, right? And yet, if he did that, why doesn't it say the king led the people to say this? And listen to this. If he didn't, if he didn't shout with the people of Israel, why wasn't he killed with the rest of the prophets of Baal? What's up with that? What's up with that? Well, we're not told. We're not told. But what we do know is we've seen this kind of messiness in the story of Elijah. The widow at Zarephath, this unsaved Baal worshiper. We're never quite sure when did she come to become a true worshiper. We've seen this with Obadiah, whose name means Yahweh's servant. And yet he was serving Ahab. And what, you know, was he a compromiser or or what was that? We kind of see this. Here's one thing we know for sure. God is still showing amazing grace to Ahab the apostate. I want you to understand that. As we've gone through this, maybe you know someone who has turned away from the faith, and you're thinking, wow, fire and slaughter, and there is no hope. But let me encourage you that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And for, for... Reasons that are only His, but rooted in His gracious character, He is showing amazing grace. Because believe me, Ahab deserved to be have his head cut off and be floating down the river, Kishon. Would you agree? He's still extending grace. Just like He shows to us in our unbelief, our compromise, our fencing, and our apostasy. But the question remains, what in the world is going on with this passage? Now, I hope I've raised enough questions that you're wondering, what is going on with this passage? Because how most teachers and preachers handle this passage is they give you a long lesson on prayer. Okay? And guess what? We'll do that next week. But And, and it's important to see and learn. Because in James, the, the aspect of Elijah's life that James point to is not his ability to call fire down but his praying. The prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. So we're going to study that next week. But around this passage, I don't think this passage is just about prayer. Otherwise, you wouldn't have all this going up. And what about outrunning the chariot? Well, there's three views on what's happening in this passage. And let me give them to you quickly and then see if I can confuse you more. First of all, nothing special. One view is nothing special is going on. In other words, Chris, you're making a big to-do about nothing. Get on with the lesson on prayer. He says, go up and eat. Why? Because they've been all day watching the Baal prophets run around the fire. They haven't eaten. He knows the rain's coming. He says, get up, go up, get you something to eat because the rain's coming and we're going to have to hightail it to Jezreel. But really, is that all that? I mean, hey, go up there and get you something to eat while I go up and I pray. Something else is going on. And that also doesn't explain what, why is he outrun the chariot? Why is he outrun? We're never really told that. We're, it's never explained. So some people just say, hey, there's nothing special here. Keep moving. Nothing to see. Learn how to pray and go pray. Secondly, so others go the opposite extreme. They say something very special is going on here. Something very special is going on here. And what they say is going on is the king, that is Ahab, this apostate, is definitely returning 
to the Lord and all is going to be restored. It's the return of the King. The King. It's the return of the King. Let's get excited, right? That's the big climax in the movie, right? And so the King, the idea here is the King has truly repented and he has repented like the people, at least for now. And Elijah wants him to get up the mountain, eat and feast in fellowship with the Lord on the mountain. Just like in Exodus 24, when God had ratified the covenant with Israel, in Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron and 70 elders of Israel were invited up on the mountain to eat and drink in the presence of God. So look, God's fire has fallen to redeem His people. The people have repented. Now the king needs to feast and fellowship in the presence of God. He needs to renew his covenant with the Lord. And then the king needs to return to Jezreel. Hurry up, get back to your palace and lead a revival. Lead a reformation because you're going to restore all things. So here is what I think this view thinks. This view thinks it's going to look like this. So let's Let's take a look at this and, and see if, if this gets your, uh, gets your uh, emotions going there. This is from The Return of the King. Okay, so that's the image, that music. And you saw the guys, they kind of, you know, rise up, you know, and and whether it's Braveheart or Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. Some say that's what's happening here, that Ahab is repented and he's renewing the covenant. So Elijah says, go up and eat and feast in the presence of the Lord and then come down, get in that chariot and go to Jezreel and and gather you know, gather the troops around. The only problem is, who's waiting for him in Jezreel? Not the Lord of Mordor, somebody worse than the Lord of Mordor. Who's waiting for him in Jezreel? Jezebel. Jezebel. And it's not going to go well, okay? It's not going to turn out like it did in the return of the kings. So I'm not not sure that's what's happening. I think this third view is what's going on. It's not, it's, it's not nothing special, but it's not something very special. It's something familiar. It's something that is familiar or typical in the Old Testament. And I think Elijah knows God, and he knows his Bible, he knows the Old Testament, he knows the history of Israel, the people have repented, the rain is coming, so the king should, hopefully, will return. And it'll turn out like that. But, just like us, when we think we know what God's doing, we start anticipating it. We start expecting it. And sometimes we get out in front of God. Anybody here ever gotten out in front of God thinking, I know what he's going to do. Let me go out there and help him do it. 
And I think that's what's going on. I think what is happening is he is seeing this play out because we're going to see in a moment, it's not every day that fire falls from heaven in Israel. And you have all of Israel that has wasted away for uh, decades in apostasy, all of a sudden shouting, the Lord He is God. These are great indicators, but what do we need to have happen? We need the return of the king. So Elijah, I think, gets out in front of what's going on and says, you really have repented, let me help you. Get up there. Go, 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 go back to the palace. Let, let's get this. Let, hey, all the signs are indicating this. And we're the same way. If you have a wayward child, if you have an unreconciled relationship, if you know people who have departed from God, you and you're praying for them and you're zealous for the Lord like Elijah is, you watch every indication in their life. And if there's the least glimmer of movement towards the Lord, you have a tendency to what? Magnify that. Anticipate that. And, and kind of, well, let's, let's, let's nurture this along. And it doesn't always turn out like you, because, because maybe what we're anticipating isn't what the Lord has planned. And so I think that's what's happening here. In fact, turn to Exodus 24, and we won't spend, you know, a lot of time reading this, but I just want you, Exodus 24 is what I think he is anticipating. Because in Exodus 24, if you look at verses 1 through 18, and you'll have to read this, on your own, but just look at verse 1. Then Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. There's our idea of come up, come near, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near. There's that idea, come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come with them. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered. Look at this, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. You see, the people are, are shouting, you know, very similar. Yahweh, He is God. Well, yes, we will obey. And Moses wrote down all the words. And then he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes. Well, Elijah had just been, built that altar with 12 stones. And he sent the young men and they brought burnt offerings, right? And then again in verse 7, the people say, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and then he, uh, uh, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Then, verse 9, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and they saw God. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. In other words, they saw God ruling on his throne over Israel. And they go on. And then verse 12, Now the Lord said, Come up. So there's all this coming up. And then verse 17 and 18, And to the eyes God's glory comes on the mountain, and to the eyes of Israel the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on a mountaintop. Okay, I, I can't... Do you see the parallels? There's a consuming fire on the mountaintop. They're going up. The people are recommit or ratifying the covenant. I believe that what you have here is Elijah's like, it's happening. The revival is breaking out. It is happening. And so I need to encourage it. Well, here's the question. Will Elijah's restoration expectation be fulfilled? So let's go through this. And let me just kind of show you a little bit of what he's anticipating, what he's seeing, and why he's expecting it. So here's the first thing. Here's the, the typical or the familiar pattern. I just read it for you from Exodus 24. Now let's look at it. First of all, the revelation of fire by Yahweh has fallen. The revelation of fire by Yahweh has fallen. 
And I just went through the last couple of weeks looking at all the instances of where fire has fallen. And I've given that to you. I'm not going to teach that to you. But there's at least seven significant things we should be thinking about when we see fire fall. fall. It doesn't happen that often. And so this was a big deal. God was revealing Himself. God's holy presence. He was judging and atoning for the sins of His people by burning up the the entire altar. Which, by the way, He was burning up all the stones to say, you don't come back here and worship Me. You worship Me back in Jerusalem. You worship Me according to My Word. He's showing His holy presence. He's validating His Word And yet, it's also a sign of his jealous wrath. Uh, That fire falling, if you don't accept the Lord, then you get what the Baal prophets get. You get slaughtered. And you get consumed by God's eternal wrath in all of eternity. So all of these ideas are there. This is a big deal. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happened on that day. Second of all, he sees the repentance of of the people has occurred. Or at least it seems so. Because we will see that this will not last long in Israel. But at least on that day, the people of Israel gathered and they responded the right way. And again, last week we celebrated Easter. This Sunday is the Lord's Day. We ought to be responding the same way. And we ought to repent of our sins because Jesus, He is God. Jesus, He is God. And He has taken the wrath and the fire of God for our sin. And He has risen and God has accepted His sacrifice for the sins of His people. And we only get on to that, get in on that if we repent and run to Him in faith. Are you with me? That's not, as we're going to see today, that's not a past thing. That's a continual thing that we do. And so he sees the repentance of the people. And this is talked about uh, uh, repeatedly. So uh, let's, let's go to 1 Kings. Let's just turn back to 1 Kings 8. How big a deal is the repentance of the people? It's a big deal. Because look at 1 Kings 8, verses 35 through 40. So we're looking at 1 Kings 8, 35 through 40. And this is Solomon's prayer to the Lord at the dedication of the temple. And here's what he says. Look at verse 35. That was not the Lord speaking to us. He speaks in His Word. Look at verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned, that is, Israel has sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then here in heaven... And forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk. And send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. And then he goes on verse 37. If there is a famine in the land, we've already seen the drought. There had been no rain and there was a severe famine. But look at verse 38. Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. You see, all of this is in Elijah's mind. The fire of God's revelation has fallen, and the atoning for their sin has taken place, and the people have repented, and with one voice they have acknowledged that The Lord, He is God. So He's not only expecting rain, but He's he's expecting a total revival. And when you go to 2 Chronicles, we don't have time to to explore all that, but if you read 2 Chronicles 6-7, through you see that this pattern is laid out. That 
Solomon prayed the prayer that we just prayed, and then God delivers fire from heaven to ignite the burnt offering, to dedicate the temple. And then, following that, the Lord answers Solomon's prayer at night, that night, and here's what he says. He says this, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, this is 2 Chronicles 7, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, and here's that famous verse, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Elijah is anticipating this. But then in in 2 Chronicles, he goes on and he says to Solomon, but understand this, as a king, you need to walk in the ways of your father David. Because if you don't, I'm going to remove you from kingship, and I'm going to send your people into exile. So Elijah knows the revelation has fallen, the repentance of the people, but what about the return of the king? And so the third thing is the renewal of the covenant needs to happen. So I believe this is why he says, get up there and eat and feast in the presence of the Lord. Because for this to happen right, it's not just the people, but we need the return of the king. So get up there, renew the covenant, and feast in the presence of the Lord. But this is messy. Because who's initiating all this? Who? Elijah. Who should be initiating this? Or at least saying something. Ahab, you see, all throughout this, Ahab saying nothing, we, and all Ahab does is silently observe and passively obey. We don't know what's in his heart because he's not speaking. So what is Elijah saying? I believe when Elijah says, get up and eat, it's not just because the guy's hungry. He's saying, get up there and eat because as the king, you need to repent and renew the covenant, to lead this people into revival. And then number four, the refreshment of the rain needs to come. Okay, the refreshment of the rain needs to come. And so while he sends Ahab up to renew the covenant, he goes up to intercede and pray for the refreshment of the rain. Because what we're going to see in Scripture is when the king returns, rains of blessing, or or when, when the king returns, the blessings return. Okay? So he's like, okay. So Elijah's like managing this. Okay, I got Ahab up there renewing the covenant. I need to do my deal and pray for rain, right? So he goes up there and he prays for rain. The only problem is it gets a little messy because... One, he's the only one praying. We don't know what... we don't. Apparently, Ahab's eating and not praying. That can't be good. And number two, he has to do it seven times. And so, I think the seven times shows, one, it's the Lord's doing, not Elijah's. But perhaps, I don't know this, but perhaps the seven times is it's taken a while because the Lord knows that this is going to be an act of grace that the people, the king, isn't seeking. And in a sense, the people are not ready for. And so, number five, the return of the king must take place. So he prays, and seven times the servant looks. Finally, the, the, the servant comes back and says, I see it. It's a far off. It's the size of a man's fist. And so, immediately he says, Go up and tell Ahab, quit feasting in the presence of the Lord and get down on that chariot because he needs to do what Aragon did. He needs to do what Braveheart did. He needs to go and rally the people in Jezreel and he needs to bring in this revival. He needs to bring in this reform. 
And that's why I believe Elijah runs ahead of him. Because here's, here's why. In those days, when a king would be writing back to his people, he would have people who were called runners, who would run in front of the chariot. And the runner would do two things. One, they would be a herald that would be announcing, the king is coming, the king is coming, get ready, you know, come out and greet the king. And the herald would also be announcing, the king has been victorious. The king has been victorious. Come out and let's celebrate the victory. I believe Elijah, in the power of the Lord, is running before Ahab, announcing revival's coming. The king has returned. He has returned to the Lord. Get ready for good things. The second thing that runners did is they were servants. And so if there was anything in the road blocking the way for the king's chariot, they would remove the obstacles before him. This is kind of like John the Baptist, who was like Elijah, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way for his coming, clear out any hindrances so people can come and meet their king. So what I think is happening is, or what I think Elijah thinks is happening is, revival is coming, the return is happening, so I'm going to run in front of the king and say, hey, the king's coming, all this is, this is going to be good. And by the way, for the first time, Elijah and Ahab have a right relationship with one another. The king is following the prophet of the Lord. In other words, he's following the word of the Lord. And the prophet is serving Yahweh's king as being a runner. That's the way this was supposed to work. But when the prophet is a false prophet, it doesn't work that way. And when the king is an apostate, it doesn't work that way. So it looks like everything's coming together. This is good news, right? This is all going to go good. We should be anticipating great victory over Mordor right now, right? But what happens? What happens? Will the return of the king bring times of refreshing or not? Look at 19, 1 through 3. Look at 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. I mean, this couldn't be, I mean, what would have happened if the Lord of the Rings or the return of the king ended that way? Everybody gets slaughtered at Mordor. And the dark eye is just there, burning, looking. No, downer. But this is exactly what happened. I think what I've explained to you explains why Elijah got so depressed, so fearful, and why he ran away. Because that's one of the mysteries of the story. How could this guy be so brave and yet so fearful? Because it's not because he just ran into Jezebel. Good night. He just faced 850 prophets of Baal. He can face a, a wicked woman. No, it's because he had these expectations. It's because he had planned out how it was going to happen, and none of it happened like he expected. Has that ever happened to you? Do you get depressed? Do you get discouraged? Do you start questioning God? Do you start questioning yourself? And sometimes do you retreat from God and kind of give up and isolate? That's exactly what I think is happening here. Now, what does this mean? That was then. This is now. Okay, that was Old Covenant. We're in New Covenant. The king has returned. Amen? Sad news is his nation rejected him. Not an Ahab, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. They rejected him, and with the Romans, they put him on the cross. But the good news is, that suffering was a part of God's plan, and he was vindicated in the resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven, and then he sent his Spirit, and it birthed the church. 
But what about the nation of Israel? Have they been rejected? Is the church supposed to replace Israel? Will God not fulfill His promises that Elijah anticipated? Well, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Now, there's so much more going on here than I can explain to you today. But I just want you to see, in Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching. They're at the temple. They just healed a lame man who couldn't walk. He healed the man who can walk in the temple. The crowds are amazed. And Peter is going to preach. And here's what happens. Look at verse 11. While he was clinging, the the man who was healed, clinging to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico or porch of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, look who he's addressing, men of Israel. He's addressing the nation of Israel. Why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you, you disowned him. And so he goes through and he talks about that and he talks about how he was vindicated by his resurrection. But look at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that includes Elijah, that his Christ would suffer. That's what Elijah needed to learn. He has fulfilled. Therefore, what? Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Not the first coming, the second coming. Israel must repent before the second coming whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Here's the idea. God has not forsaken His people, but His people have not yet repented. The nation of Israel has not yet repented. And when they do, and they will, It will be right before the return of the king. The king will be returning. They'll look and see him and they say, Oh my gosh, we made a major mistake. And they repent and the Lord comes to the earth and delivers them at Armageddon, which is in the valley of Megiddo, which is where Jezreel's at. Interesting, right? And the times of refreshing are going to come. And the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. And Jesus, the son of David, a righteous king, not an apostate king, is going to sit on the throne for a thousand years. And after that is fulfilled, and God has fulfilled every promise to his people Israel, and the church is going to get in on that, then comes the new creation, and all will be fulfilled in God. That's just good news. But what, what should we be doing? Okay, that's a great history lesson. That's a great prophecy lesson. What should we be doing? Let me give you these things. First of all, here's what we should be doing as the church. As we wait for Israel to repent, as we wait for the Lord to return in His second coming, number one, you continue to repent. Repentance is not just for Israel. And folks, repentance isn't just for when you get saved. Repentance is a lifestyle of the true believer. So much so that in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm afraid to the, to the Corinthians who were a messed up church. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of impurity, immorality, and sensuality, which they have practiced. He, listen, the king has come. You've been redeemed. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
Repent of your sins. Don't practice them. Don't stay in them, believer. Repent. That's number one. Number two, continue to remember the new covenant until the Lord returns. Just as Elijah wanted Ahab to renew that covenant and to feast in the presence of God. You know what we should be doing until Christ returns? We should be taking the Lord's Supper as a church. And we do it until He comes. You know what Jesus said when He instituted the Lord's Supper? He said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom. We need to renew. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, that's a remembrance and a renewal that we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And we have the ability to live godly lives. Isn't that good? So don't. it's not about little cups and stale wafers, okay? It's about symbols where God imparts grace to renew that covenant. Number three, we need to continue to run before the king until he returns. We need to be like Elijah. And we need to be out there running before the king returns. And so what should we be doing? Be the king's herald and announce... The king is coming. Well, actually, we should announce the king has come and he's coming again. The king has come and he's coming again. And by the way, he was victorious on the cross and he'll be victorious on earth when he comes again. Isn't that good? That's what run in front of the king. Run in front of his chariot. And number two, be the king's servant and obey all of his commands. You know, the greatest hindrance to unbelievers coming to the Lord besides their own hard heart is the lousy lives of Christians around them. So be a runner. Be a runner. Get out in front and buy a, a righteous life. Remove any obstacles. May an unbeliever, may no unbeliever stand before the Lord and say, the Christians around me, we're a lousy, you know, don't be that Christian. Are you with me? And then number four, continue to rest on his promises and prayer. What did Elijah do? There is a lesson on prayer. That's next week. What did Elijah do? At least one thing that he did right in this whole story is he went up on a mountain and he claimed God's promises and he prayed for rain and, and he persevered. And rain came. It was more important to him than eating. And he persevered in it when the answer wasn't immediate. We'll learn more about that next week. And then number five. Continue to rejoice in the Lord. The ultimate promise keeper. Man, there's so much theology in what we just covered. I wish I could do it. But here's the deal. God's a promise keeper. And out of all those promises that I've lifted there, let me just pick out one and say, the nation will return. God has not abandoned Israel. You know how we know? Romans 9 through 11. And you know what Romans 11 says? Paul says these very words. Has God rejected Israel? In other words, are they off the table and now the church has replaced? He says, by no means... And then he quotes Elijah and he says, just as in the times of Elijah, Elijah thought Israel was over. See, when he went and, and, and saw what happened with Jezebel in chapter 19, he's like, it's toast. When I die, all of Israel is dead because I'm the only one. And the Lord gently reminds him, Elijah, you don't know everything. I've got 7,000 people who haven't bent the knee to Baal. I always have a remnant. And so what Paul says in Romans 11, he says, he, he answers people who say, has God rejected Israel? And he says, no, just as in the time of Elijah, God has a remnant of Jews within the church. The Apostle Paul is an example. I have a remnant that will stay in the church but there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will see the Lord coming in the clouds. They will repent. And the Lord will save them as a nation and establish the kingdom on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every promise to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled. And then Paul says this, and then we have to close. He says, now think. 
if the rejection of Jesus brought all these blessings to the church, Jew and Gentile, just think when Israel repents, how great the blessings will be for all the world. Isn't that cool? So some of you are like, you know what? I've never even heard all this. That's all right. Read up on this. Read these passages. But I hope I've got your appetite. So here's the point. When you get discouraged and you get out in front of God, you do these five things. When you have a wayward son or daughter or mate and they make moves and then remain in their sin, you do these five things because God's a promise keeper. And your loved one may not be saved, but God is still king and the king will return. And there will be times of refreshment for his people. Is that just a glorious thing? I don't know. I'm excited. All right, let's pray. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the amazing things. I I don't pretend to understand all that's going on in here. Uh, You don't explain everything clearly. I, I think this is what's happening. And I think it makes sense with the rest of the story. And, and Lord, I'm glad you're a promise keeper. I'm glad that you have amazing grace, even for apostates. But, Lord, we must respond. We must respond by faith. And you must, by a work of grace, change our hearts and save us. And once we're saved, Lord, I pray that we will keep repenting of sin. We will keep remembering the new covenant in your blood. We will keep rejoicing in your promise keeping and we will rest in those promises through an active prayer life that continually says, God, may your name be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Not just in my life, but on this planet and in this universe in a way that spreads the fame of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who is God, truly God. Amen. Amen.